Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. I want you to imagine, if you will, a, a husband sitting on the couch after a long day of work on his phone. Uh, Perhaps he is furiously writing emails. Perhaps he is uh, using birds to attack pigs. Whatever the case may be, he is sitting there on his phone at home on the couch, and his wife says to him, Honey, would you take care of the trash for me? And he says, Yeah, 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 fine, fine. I'll get to it in a minute. And you just wait a minute. I want to paint another picture for you. Perhaps a husband and wife are going out. And, and as they are going out, they're, they're going to an event for the husband's work party. And everything is ready. The, the sitter has arrived for the family. And they are ready to walk out the door. And the wife says, oh, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. I just need to curl my hair. I'm just going to be one second. Give me a second. Uh, perhaps you don't relate to those two things. Perhaps you relate to... Uh, the, the idea of going out to a, a party with your friends. You're going to meet your friends at a restaurant, and you get there, and they do not show up for another hour. And you sit there by yourself, just waiting. Or perhaps you found yourself in the situation that I did just this week. I had a very good friend of mine visiting from town, um, and another friend of mine had given me some very generous and kind raise tickets. And so I decided to take my friend to the Rays game. And these were the good kind of seats where you got, you got some food and you got some other things included with the seats. And so I was very excited to go. So we, we leave our house, we, we take an Uber to the game, and we get there. And my friend says, hey, I'd like to buy a Rays t-shirt. You know, I don't have a Rays t-shirt. And I thought, well, that's fine. So we go into the Rays store there at the stadium, and he proceeds to look at and try on nearly every single Rays t-shirt in the entire store. And I am sitting there kind of nervously checking my watch, looking at my phone. Come on, let's go. I want to, let's go watch the baseball game, right? What is the thread that ties these four stories together? What is the thing that makes all of those connect? All of those scenarios connect because of the idea of urgency. But here's the thing about urgency. Urgency is usually a one-person thing, isn't it? Because because urgency is almost always self-focused. For me, when my wife asks me to take out the trash, I don't have a great sense of urgency. Why? Well, Because this email has got to be sent. Because, you know... These, these bubbles aren't going to pop themselves because whatever I'm doing, I feel is more important in that moment. But the tables turn when I want to leave the house and someone else is not ready. All of these scenarios point us to the fact that we are always self-focused in our urgency. My stuff is important. Your stuff can wait. What I need to do takes precedent right now over what you need to do. In all of these scenarios, we can see ourselves and find ourselves. But guess what? The trash is still going to be there in a few minutes. 
That event will go on without you. The party will still be there. The seats in the stadium do not move, whether you're five minutes early or five minutes late. We just don't feel urgency unless there is an immediate benefit to us. This is extra true when it comes to our faith, isn't it? We don't have a lot of urgency in our faith. Our faith is good. It's important. I like it. I love Jesus. But we easily say, you know what? I'll do my Jesus stuff later. You know what? That, that problem that I need to address, it'll be there in the morning. Let's just go ahead and let's go to bed. I'm, I'm, you know what? I'm not going to sign up for, to do that thing to help out the church because I'm just giving someone else a chance to volunteer. I'm being the better person here. I'm being the better Christian by allowing someone else the opportunity to serve. Whatever our excuse is, oftentimes our faith lacks any sort of urgency. And the reason why there is no urgency in our faith is because we don't really face any sort of suffering as Christians here in America. And we never think about Christ's return. Those two big ideas, that we don't really face any kind of suffering, and that we don't really consider the fact that Christ is coming back, those two things create in us an absolute lack of urgency in our faith. And we're not alone. The people that Peter was writing to, as we've been studying his first letter, had the same problems we do. So I'd like to read to you the first 11 verses of chapter 4, if you would stand with me as I read. Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passion, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayer. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. We lack any sort of urgency in our faith because we don't suffer 
and because we don't think about the return of Christ. And so Peter begins to unpack these two ideas for us. He starts by saying, remember that Jesus has suffered and that your suffering comes along with his. He said, Jesus has already suffered, so don't keep acting like everyone else. Jesus has suffered. He has sacrificially died for us. Therefore, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For many of us as Christians, we we have hard things in our life. We have difficulties that we face. But the idea of truly suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ is something that is still pretty foreign to us. When we read sort of the reports of of Christians in in China being followed and imprisoned, when we read stories about about churches being bombed uh, in the Philippines, when we read sort of all of these things that are going on in other countries, we definitely feel that those things are foreign and far from us. Perhaps, Perhaps work is not as comfortable as we want to be. Perhaps some people don't like our views on this or that, but at the end of the day, most of our suffering is pretty minimal. And so on the one hand, it would be easy to kind of take this passage and sort of move it along. But if we do that, we miss out on something. That it's not just our suffering that Peter has in mind here. It's the suffering of Jesus. Jesus suffered on our behalf. He suffered sacrificially and lovingly towards us. And he said, what the Christian life begins with, what is foundational to our life, is arming ourselves with this same idea, is dwelling on this, is thinking about the fact that Christ has died for us, that we are called to love and to serve others in the same way. And he says, arm yourself with this. It's it's a military idea. It's the idea of going to the armory and and the barracks and, and picking up your weapon. This is the weapon that you pick out to go in battle. It's the idea that Jesus has suffered, and we, in different ways, will too. This sacrificial mindset is key to our Christian life because when we begin to live out of that identity, something happens. In the passage, it says anyone who suffers has ceased to sin. Now, we sort of think about that and compare it to our lives and something doesn't line up, right? Most of us have suffered in one small way or another. And yet, as we sort of read this passage, most of us have not ceased to sin. I dare say, all of us have not ceased to sin. So what is Paul talking about? Paul is talking about a realignment of the way that we think. It's talking about a change in our desires. Are we ready to leave behind the way that we have lived apart from Christ? Am I ready to leave behind the ways that I have lived apart from Christ? That's a tougher answer than we kind of want to think. See, it'd be easy for us to go, yes, oh, I'm, I'm very ready. I, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Right? We could sing that song over and over. Right? But the reality of it is, most of us struggle with this. Most of us struggle to leave our lives before Christ behind. Some of us are really good at the love and service and hospitality in the second part of this passage, but we're not very good at this. 
We justify what we do Monday to Saturday with what we do on Sunday. You see, I, I, I host a small group. I, I volunteer at the church. I brought donuts. I, and we fill in the blank with the things that we've done. And we let those sort of wash over and excuse everything else we've done this week. Right? We have, we sort of drag ourselves in on Sunday morning because of what we did on Saturday night. Paul says, this is not the way that the Christian lives. Peter says this, not Paul. He says, this is not the way we live. He says that we are supposed to live in such a way that not only leaves that behind, but causes others to be surprised. Causes others to be surprised by the way that we begin to live our life. Which begs the question, who's surprised by the way you're living? Who is surprised by the choices and decisions that you make? Probably not as many, not many of us would have a good answer to that. And so he goes on and he says, it's not just that others are going to be surprised, but when they do see this, they will malign you. They will make fun of you. This is not normal. See, when Paul listed out all those things that we kind of see as heinous, right? The sort of these drunken parties and orgies, right? Even in our culture, most people would say that's pretty bad. That's not okay. But that was the culture that Peter lived in. And I think I just said Paul a second ago again. For some reason that is stuck in my head. And for that, I'm sorry. If you hear me say Paul, unless I really mean it, I mean Peter from now on. You'd think I hadn't been preaching on Peter since the first of the year. You know, whatever. Here we are. What Peter moves on and says, look, they are surprised that you don't act like everyone else in the culture. And so they mock you for it. Peter says, guess what? That's okay, because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming for those who don't believe and for those who do believe. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe you're even a little bit antagonistic towards the Christian faith, but you came anyway. For that, I say thank you. Thank you for being thoughtful enough to come. But you're making a gamble. Because if you believe that God is just sort of a wish projection, if God is just a figment of our imagination, a hope, a crutch to keep us going, if that is sort of what you believe, and you're right, good. Good for you. But if you're wrong, if you are wrong about whether there is a God, if you are wrong about whether or not judgment is coming, That is a hell of a gamble, pun intended, because you are actually gambling with your soul. And it's something to absolutely consider. But for those of us who are Christians, we need to be reminded that our actions have consequences. What you do in this life matters. The decisions that you make matter. And so for some of us, we hear that and it's easy for us to get down. We hear and are reminded of the ways that we have not yet left behind our former lives, that our desires have not yet changed and it's easy for us to get down. But Peter couches this and reminds us about the gospel. As soon as he tells us about judgment, about the wrath of God, about God's holiness, which is not to be trifled with, he tells us also about the goodness of God. That this is precisely why Jesus suffered. 
Jesus suffered to take the punishment for your sins and mine. And so, Jesus' suffering is redemptive to those of us who will trust in it. But it leads us to our own type of suffering. Not identical to Jesus, but flowing out of that. And then, Peter shows how Jesus' return gives us a new sense of urgency. You see, I don't think about the return of Jesus very much. I don't think about Jesus coming back very much. Uh, for, for the first reason that I don't think about it very much is, is because things sort of seem to go on just like they always have, don't they? You know, I mean, maybe we've got new phones. Uh, maybe things have changed a little bit here and there. But by and large, the world seems to be just flipping along as it always had. Why should I think about Jesus returning? And the other reason, and I think this is the reason that most of us don't think about Jesus coming back, uh, is because we've seen too many examples of people uh, being a little crazy about things like this, haven't we? We see a, a lot of examples of people saying, ah, well, just on, on this day, J- Jesus is going to come back after the fourth blood moon of the fourth, fourth harvest, 55 years after Israel was reestablished. As a, you know, and they've got all these schemes and plans and maps and drawings and all of that, and guess what happened? It doesn't. Jesus doesn't return on the date that they thought, and so they go, ah, ah, well, I, 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 mis- I, I miscalculated. I, I didn't do the math right, or I forgot to factor in this, or, and they sort of always change it. And so that sort of fatigue, especially if we grew up in a church that was all about that, that sort of fatigue gives us an excuse to put that out of our mind. Look, all that crazy stuff, all that crazy math and circles, and, and if you look at the seventh word of the eighth verse of the ninth book of whatever kind of, right, makes us go, I'm just not thinking about that. But when we don't think about that, we don't live with the sort of urgency, sobriety, and prayerfulness that Peter says we should. You know, you know what happens is, we understand where this urgency should come from. I remember when I, was a, when I was a young man, my parents went out of town for a while. They went on a vacation, and they left me at the house by myself. They gave me some money. I was an only child, and they said, hey, don't burn down the house. We'll be back on Tuesday. We'll be back on Monday, whatever it was. And so I, as most teenagers in that scenario would do, invited a few friends over. And we... we, we we hung out. And in the course of hanging out, of course, the house uh, gets into a state of disarray. I don't know how it happened or when it happened, but at some point that weekend, the house became very messy. And so I woke up on Sunday morning and I looked around and said, eh, I'll deal with this later. And so the house stayed a wreck. What did I feel on Monday morning when they were coming back Monday night? I felt all of a sudden a new sense of urgency. I felt that there were tasks that I had to accomplish in the next few hours that were very important. And so I began to work hard. I had a renewed sense of urgency because I knew something was going to happen. Peter tells us that that is actually the way that we should live our lives. The way that we should live our lives is as if Jesus is returning at any time. 
And that's, that's tough for us because of all the reasons that I mentioned before. But Paul says, Peter says, I did it again. Peter says that we should be prayerful because the only one who can change things in this life is God. He is the only one who can really make the changes that matter. And so if we think he is returning the things that we want done, we are going to be mindful and prayerful of. And not only that, we need to love one another earnestly from our hearts, consistently again and again and again, and in a way that is quick to forgive and assume the best. You see, Paul begins to show the way that this urgency is not just prayerful, but the way this urgency shapes the way that we love one another. The Christian church is to be set apart by the way that it loves each other earnestly, truly, not tolerates. Right? A lot of us want to tolerate other people, but we're not called to tolerate everybody in the church. We're called to love them. And not only are we called to genuinely, earnestly love them, but we're called to love them again and again and again. And we're called to love them in a way, but Peter says that, that love covers a multitude of sins. And what he means by that is that as we engage in community, we begin to trust one another. And maybe, maybe somebody said something that wasn't the best. Maybe they phrased something the wrong way. But, but out of love, we're going to hope the best. Out of love, we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Out of love, we're not going to be thin-skinned, but rather we are going to actively love others. What, what Peter is doing is he's setting up a contrast in the two sections of this passage. He's setting up a contrast between the sort of lawless, licentious Saturnalia of the people of Rome and the love and forgiveness and earnestness of the people of the church. And so as these two things are meeting, he's showing, look, we have something else. We live a different way. We do something different. And so not only are we supposed to love, but that love leads to hospitality. That we break down the social and cultural and economic and even religious ways that we show hospitality to one another. What's interesting is some of us are really good at leaving our old lives behind. I remember the phrase growing up was, I don't drink or chew or run with girls who do. Right? We're very good at, at breaking off from our old life. But what often happens is because we are good at that, because we have, we have gotten our sin management down, we become self-righteous. And we don't love others well. All of a sudden, we don't hang out with people who haven't achieved the same level of sin management as we have. Who haven't, who aren't as godly as we are. And so all of a sudden, we restrict our hospitality to just people, not only who look like us, not only who act like us and who have the same jobs as us, but we restrict our love and hospitality only to people who are just as Christian as I, I don't want to eat with that person. People might think that I approve of their sin. I don't want to eat with that person. What will people say if I invite those people over to my house? 
You see, it's very easy for us to become self-righteous and to use something good like hospitality to be a theater for our self-righteousness. We only invite people over to our house who are on our Christian level. And so what happens in this passage as we read through it is we see our pride and our unbelief exposed. The pride that we have that comes from our our self-righteous and selective hospitality. That we don't love others. That we don't actively seek to engage people that are different than us out of our pride and our unbelief. That what God says is best for our life really is. And so as we sort of see in this passage, one or the other, probably in our heart, we remember that we are the reason that Jesus suffered. That he loved us so much that he died to forgive us, not just of pride, but also for unbelief. That while this passage exposes some raw parts of our lives, reminds us of some ways that we are not living up to what God has called us to, we are reminded that Jesus has actively loved us, has given himself for us. And so we begin to repent. We begin to repent of our pride and belief. We don't just love and show hospitality. Something else happens. We begin to serve others. That's where all of this is leading. All of the urgency, all of the suffering, all of this points us ahead to the way that we serve others because Jesus has given you, Christians, real gifts. He's given you gifts and equipped you to do things that are needed. And they're unique. And not one of them is better than any of the others. It is not better to change diapers in the nursery than it is to preach a sermon. It is not better to preach a sermon than it is It is not better to set up than it is to play on the worship crew. There are so many ways that we can see to serve the church. And you have been gifted. If you are a Christian, Jesus has gifted you with a way to love and serve your church. And when we begin to see how great the love and sacrifice of Jesus is, we're reminded of that and we are pushed more and more to serve however we are gifted and not for our glory, not so that we can get something out of it, but rather so that Jesus' name is lifted up. As we think about this passage, I am reminded of what is oftentimes in in historic churches called the mystery of the faith. We've said it together sometimes here at City Church. The mystery of of the Christian faith is this. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. City Church, may we reflect today on that mystery. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray.